This is the Real Estate Addicts Podcast, episode 22, with your hosts, Ray Herto, HRV Homes. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Mark Savatsky, Choose Boston. And today we are joined by... Willie Mandrell, the Mandrell Company. Willie. Great to have you today. Welcome. I I appreciate you guys having me on. Thanks for putting up with our shenanigans. (laughs) (laughs) We're doing uh, Instagram Live in the background here. No pressure. Just got (laughs) to... Smile the whole time, wave to the audience. Willie, you've got a pretty impressive um, resume, if I may say so myself, with the Mandrell companies and it's the Mandrell companies, right? It, it, the Mandrell companies, yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. So uh, before we get started, though, I just want to back up and uh, talk a little bit about it. <laughs> yeah, we were talking about this. <laughs> the question that was asked before we hopped on is, how did you guys get started with this podcast? What made you want to do a podcast? And uh, you, what was your inspiration? You, you are <laughs> inspirational, yeah. yeah. Yep, right. Our catalyst. <laughs> we were at the Broadway. We we're all doing like our monthly developer lunch. <clears throat> and I feel like you made like an offhanded remark, Will. And you were like, someone told me we should do a podcast. And I looked at this kid and I was like, I don't have time for that. <laughs> <laughs> One of you should do it. I don't have time to do it. And you guys took that seriously. Huh? Although, <laughs> and then I was like, oh, I don't really have time either. And then like 45 minutes later, Mark texted Ray and I was like, you guys want to do a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's how it happened. That's it. No, it's good stuff. You guys Lord. have been uh, really getting the, the word out there, and it's a, it's a lot of good episodes. Um, I've heard some good things uh, from people in the neighborhood, people in the investor community. So, you know, nice. keep it up. Thank I you. I appreciate Thank it. You. So Thanks you've got a time. brokerage, you do rentals, you do some development, I've heard. What do you do? I'm a landlord first. I'm a, a real estate investor first. I've been in the business since 2006. Uh, bought my first two family in Quincy. Uh, and just really fell in love with it. Uh, my grandmother had been a, uh, a real estate investor, a buy and hold investor for years. Uh, and she was the one that really pushed me into the business, said, you know, I should buy a multi after college. Glad I listened to her, just loved the idea of, you know, collecting rents. And uh, my tenants were paying half of my mortgage. It was just kind of a, you know, property was appreciating. It wasn't the greatest time to buy real estate, 2006, uh, end of 2006, beginning of 2007. <laughs> You know, like I said, for those of you who are unfamiliar, the you know the stock market crashed, and soon after the real estate market uh, took a little bit of a tumble after that. But I, but I have no regrets. I, you know, uh, that two family taught me a lot about being a landlord and um, the real estate business itself. But you know, like Warren Buffett says, you, when you know when when you know, things are you know going sideways, you kind of look for opportunities. So 2011, 2012, you know, I bought you know a few more multifamilies, Dorchester area. And they've been doing quite well. And, you know, like I said, I just continue to build my portfolio from there. Do you still have that first one? I do not. No, the first one was a two-family. And uh, since then, it was it's, it was a nice uh, primary residence. But in, in my experience, two families are, are more work than they're worth for the investor. You know, you just don't get enough cash from them. I, I like the, the Boston triple-decker. You know, that third unit is usually your, 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 your cash flow. You know, the first two units cover and the third unit usually kind of puts some money back into your pocket. Did you have a life prior to real estate? So did you, when you got out of school, did you jump right into real estate full time or did you do something before that? Well, when I bought that, that multi in 2006, like I said, I wasn't in real estate full time. I was in uh, financial services. So I went to school uh, for finance, got out and was in the um, you know financial services industry, stocks, bonds, uh, mutual funds, was doing some compliance work for a uh, small brokerage. And then again, when the market crashed, 2007, you know, a lot of brokerages were closing up. Uh, a lot of people were having a lot of trouble. And, you know, my fir- my firm downsized. And I felt like 
uh, 2010, it was time for me to make a decision about what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And real estate had always been it. Uh, I was a little nervous prior, but you know, I, it, it, it's kind of funny. I just, I thought to myself, I said, well, you know, I might as well just hop into this business. And if I'm not successful, if I fail, I can just blame it on the, the recession because everybody else was getting foreclosed on and losing a job and, <laughs> you know, doing shit anyway. So I just said, Hey, you know, let's just go ahead and do it. And if I'm not successful, I would just be, you know, one of the people that got caught up in, you know, the, 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 the recession or the downturn of 2007, 2008, but it didn't happen that way. You know, you got in, I really had a passion for the business. You know, one of the reasons I started the brokerage and after that is because I really wanted to be immersed in the business. Um, I really, I felt like as an investor, obviously more opportunities would come my way. If I was in front of more opportunities, I met more people, more people looking to sell uh, and buy real estate. I would learn more about contracts and more just different ways to finance real estate. So I got my real estate license, worked for a couple brokers myself. Uh, and I think in 2013, 2014, I decided to start my own brokerage. Where'd you pull the capital together for your first deal? Um, first deal was the first, uh, your first buying, purchase. Buying, yeah. Uh, uh, FHA. Uh, I mean, that's, it, yeah. yeah, that's why. What I, was your experience? Like I've always, people ask that a lot. Like, should I pursue an FHA loan? And I think there's two sides to the coin. I mean, I would, I don't see any, uh, you know, downsides to it really. I mean, you're, you're allowed to buy a multifamily with three and a half percent, you know, down. I mean, there's, you know, now I'm, you know, as a, you know, established investor, you know, banks are looking for 25%, 20% if I'm lucky especially in Boston, we don't have that type of capital where, you know, I mean, most people don't readily available. And even if you do, do you have it for the next one? So now you're talking about 200 grand plus down. So if you can get into a multifamily at the time, I think I purchased the first one for 400 grand. So we're talking about, you know, $15,000 out of pocket. And I think I borrowed most of that from my, my cousin. So yeah, I mean, I think it was a great opportunity. Back. I did, I did. I <laughs> I showed him. I showed him the. They're complete. no longer talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's called leverage, man. Yeah. Yeah. You know, long I can hold his Burn money, those the more bridges. I can. <laughs> exactly. It wasn't. It wasn't. A, it was. It was a second cousin anyway. It's all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, does he listen to the well, podcast? Yeah. <laughs> as, far, as far as FHA goes, though, like in a competitive market, I feel as though if you have an offer. And your mortgage contingency shows you're putting three and a half percent down. You know, you might. You mean from the seller side, from the seller side, as far as being successful in your pursuit. Well, again, the market has changed since since 2006. Um, We're definitely in a seller's market, and you're absolutely right. Um, If I'm selling a multifamily, I'm a little bit more reluctant to you know go with a buyer that's three and a half percent down. So a lot of times you're having to pay, especially in today's market. Uh, full market price or a little bit above, uh, you know, market. If you really want to push some of those investors out of the way and 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 you know beat out the competition, I would say, especially in the multifamily space right now in Boston, in my experience, is probably, you know, fifteen to twenty buyers for every one property that hits the market. So you're out there competing with you know you know fifteen to twenty serious buyers, and if you want to make your offer stand out, it's it's usually going to be something where we, I just accepted an offer, you know, a few days ago where they completely waived the home inspection. Not something I'm suggesting to, to every buyer, but that's something that we said, yeah, okay, well, if they're going to just waive the home inspection, they're comfortable with this property. I think we're more likely to go with them than somebody who's 20 grand lower, but he's going to do a home inspection. I think the other thing from a buyer's side that has changed with, P, with um, FHA loan is PMI. So back, because I purchased my first property with an FHA loan, three and a half percent down, but back prior to the 2007, 2008, your PMI, which is private mortgage insurance, was the percentages were way Way less than they require now. So everything changed after 2007, 2008 and, and banks or lenders, you know, or 
mortgage underwriters were requiring much higher percentages of PMI. So your your payments have gone way up. Yeah, no, yeah. they absolutely have. I mean, things of, you know, the market has improved, the economy has improved, things are tightened up. I mean, I in, you know, 2008, 9, 10, we were trying to stimulate the economy, right? So, I mean, the lending was easier, you know, um, you know, banks were encouraging to, you know, people to go into, into homes. Um, not that that's not the case now. It's just, you know, like I said, it's the economy is better. Things have improved. Things are tightening up a little bit. So it is a little bit more difficult. PMI is still a scam. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I just think that that is, uh, it's like flushing money. But the, but there the are, good news- But it was yeah. designed for a purpose. It was. Uh, I, you know, I'm sure there's a flip side to that argument. But from my perspective, when I was oh, a young investor- but the, the Every good, dollar counts, you know, yeah. especially on your first one. That's your baby. That's your, sure. that's your first one. Everybody loves their first one. I mean, the good news is if the market is appreciating or otherwise, you do things to augment the value of the property, you renovate the kitchen, et cetera. You can call the bank back through and say, look, I know I only put 5% down, but based on its current value relative to what I put in, I have more than 20% equity. And then you can uh, forego that PMI. Well, there, I think so there are also- there are also new programs that have been introduced, you know, state-specific programs. Like I know Mass Housing has a, a program where you can uh, you only have to put 5% down, but you don't have to pay any PMI. So I think there are other alternatives to, because FHA is more of a federally mandated loan versus there are specific statewide right. loan options that people can can take advantage of for their first homes as well. So there are other options there. Yeah, I mean, what we try to tell our buyers on a, on a regular basis is not all, it, there's this assumption that all lenders are created equal. Um, if you go into one bank and you're offered, you know, you know, program A, B, and C, that if you go into the next bank, you're going to be offered the exact same thing. I encourage people to go out and shop for mortgages. Not all lenders are created equal. I, I you know, I would avoid, actually encourage potential buyers to avoid banks altogether. I would, you know, offer, uh, try to shop with a mortgage broker. Mortgage broker is going to offer you more opportunities. They're going to sit down, look at your specific financial situation and, uh, try to cater the loans that are out there to what your needs are. So. So Willie, when did you get into rehabbing properties? Were your first few multis kind of stable assets that didn't need much? And, uh, at a certain point you got into, um, renovating and rehabbing? Willie didn't want to touch renovations with a 10-foot pole when I first met him. Yeah, no, that's that, that's absolutely true. I, did, I didn't really need to. I mean, at the time, you bought the, the first two-family FHA. You get creative and you say, okay, I did exactly what Mark just mentioned or, or then just mentioned, refied out of that, that two-family and I could go out and buy another multifamily with an FHA loan or, you know, low-down conventional loan because I had moved and my financial situation had changed and my work situation has changed. It gets a little little complex, but you can buy a couple with uh, conventional financing. I got a little creative. I'm, I'd, I'd been dating my wife for a while, and we knew that we were going to get married at some point. I encouraged her to go get a multifamily with a FHA loan nice. conventional property as well. <laughs> so now we're sitting on three properties. Were you living together yet at the time? Uh, we were. Okay. Yes, right, yes, so yes. I was just curious, <laughs> so, like trying to no, order, arrange mean, the steps. Four, 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 this was four months into their relationship. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so no, I mean- Honey, I, I didn't get you a ring, but we do have a multifamily. No, I, I always I, tell, no, I'm just I, I tell them the same joke for years, joke. man. As, as an old man, I, I you know, I- you know, tell everybody I wish I was Mormon because if I, you know, I'd have multiple wives and we would have had multiple, we would have had six more <laughs> FHA loans uh, and I would have been able to acquire six more rental properties very early on in That's my career. Great. Well, but unfortunately, we, I'm not Mormon. I only have one wife, you know, one girlfriend at a time. So, uh, 
you know, we had those three rentals and then you kind of get stuck. We had saved up a bunch stuck of cash because the, the conventional restrict the number. Exactly. Of conventional. They're, they're, conventional loan programs are some for somebody who is going to live in that property. You own three properties and it's kind of hard for the bank to believe that you're going to move into the next one. You're an investor now and they, and they understand that. So where do you go from there? We had saved up a bunch of money. I think we bought, you know, unit number or building number four. Um, we just saved, saved, and saved, and uh, we were able to acquire building number four. And then Dan is absolutely right. At that time, I had to change my thinking because now conventional lending is no longer an option for me. How do I, I don't have another $100,000 to put down on a, you know, a piece of property. How do I go out and acquire building number five, six, and seven? I come across bigger pockets and discovered that, that, BRR strategy or our oh, strategy. You're pushing a, a competitor's podcast <laughs> on the wrist. It's okay. Uh, we so, we so, listen to so, so, so for those of you who are not familiar, the, the buy, renovate, rent, and refinance. Burr. The Burr strategy, right. So part of that is the rehab you know, phase of it. And you know, it was long the time that I met Dan and Ray, and they were doing some rehabs and um, you know, filled me on a couple of different things. So the, the idea is that instead of uh, putting 20% down, you're creating equity. You go in, you find a piece of property and today's numbers, what I'm looking for is a triple decker, you know, in the Dorchester area that's priced around, let's call it 600,000. It needs new windows. It needs a rubber roof. The furnaces are shot. The electrical is bad. I'm going in and I'm putting about 200, $250,000 into the property. Uh, and at the end of the day, the property is worth uh, a million, a million fifty somewhere out there. So instead of me putting money down, I've created that equity um, and I'm going back to the bank or, you know, re, you know, staying with the same exact lender, refinancing that property now as a stable asset after I get it rented. Uh, and they're saying, Willie, you know, you don't need a down payment. You've already created your equity. Uh, and that's essentially what the Burr strategy is, basically just going in and, and doing that rehab to create your value versus you know, using a down payment. Can you talk about the timeline for that specific type of rehab? So you, you purchased the building you're getting a, what type of loan product are you getting? Are you getting, you know, a, a commercial construction loan? When the first one I did, I did with hard money. Um, the idea was to go in, you know, use hard money. And then at the end of the project, uh, it took us about seven months to uh, bring everything up. We did a new rubber roof, electrical plumbing, and just kind of did all the, the essentials. Uh, and then went to a lender like Needham Bank or Eagle Bank and then refied the stable asset into a conventional or a uh, stable program. Today, I'm using conventional lending, uh, what do they call it? Temp to perm loans, right? So you're basically getting the construction financing. They're allowing you 12 months to do the rehab, get the asset stable. And then at the end of that 12 months, your loan is, your construction loan is automatically converted into permanent financing. Now, are they, do you have to refi into, once you create that equity, are they automatically, when you, when it switches to the perm op, you know, perm term, are you already upping the equity there or do you have to refinance again once it's stabilized? No, they're doing, um, at the beginning of the project, I find the asset at 600 grand. They're basically saying, uh, they're doing two appraisals right at the beginning of their project. They're doing an as-is appraisal and then an after-repair value. So as long as I do everything that I'm saying I'm going to do during the construction phase, they're assuming that that asset is worth a million bucks at the end of the day. Uh, no new appraisal, no refinance. It automatically converts into the permanent financing. Now I'm paying interest and principal versus just interest uh, during the construction phase. And then, you, you know, like I said, hopefully your, your, your all three units or all, both units are rented out and you're cash flowing right from, uh, right from month 13, should I say. What type of tenants are you filling these types of properties with? Is this all market rate 
or is there some Section 8 or subsidized uh, component? Yeah, it was a combination of both. I find that, you know, of the neighborhoods that you know, that are in Boston, um, I like to focus Dorchester, Roxbury, Mattapan, did some things in, in Chelsea and East Boston back in the Can day. You give a little context on those neighborhoods for folks who maybe aren't familiar or aren't in Boston. Dorchester, Roxbury, Matt, they're, they're, they're uh, essentially, uh, the way I would describe them as rental neighborhoods. They're, they're the, the, I would say the majority of the people that live in those neighborhoods are tenants, not necessarily homeowners. A lot of multifamily stock, uh, a lot of triple-deckers, for those of you familiar with Boston, the triple-decker. Uh, <laughs> well, um, yeah, a lot, a lot of uh, rental uh, you know, um, ability there. So you have a combination of market tenants and uh, subsidized housing tenants there, a good mix. Um, you find that the return on investment is still there for those neighborhoods. Neighborhoods like uh, South Boston, more of a, you know, primarily, and you guys can speak to this, a condo market. East Boston's turning that way. Uh, Somerville, some other neighborhoods are turning that way. Whereas Dorchester, a lot of condos, you know, taking place, but I'd say with the majority of the neighborhood and one of the biggest neighborhoods in Boston is still primarily a rental, rental market. It's a question we get a lot, right? Is do you do apartments or condos? Is this for sale product or for rent? And to me, I'm, I mean, I almost, pre- I prefer to do rentals, but the numbers so often dictate you, you must go for sale. Right. In a lot of the neighborhoods where we're playing, Ray, do you sort of the numbers guy? Mm, yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> tough the because costs and- once one person in, in a condo, quote unquote, condo market where it's primarily condos, that's what the assets are selling for. Whereas on the, the apartment or the rental side of, of the neighborhood, they'll sell with that in mind as well. I think what we've actually been seeing, what we've been talking about, Dan and I at least, is that we're starting to even see people kind of trickle into apartment neighborhoods to try and do condos. And that's always a fun. You're seeing people trying to push the boundaries, right? right. So the peop- the developers or investors that can't necessarily find a good deal in an area of Eastie or an area of Dorchester that you know, is primarily condos, they're pushing deeper and deeper in to the fringe neighborhoods, you know, where they can possibly get a better deal. But on the flip side, they're inheriting a lot more risk because, you know, you don't know if you're going to be able to sell those condos. You're kind of a pioneer. Yeah, you're pioneering. But but hopefully you're getting um, more density, right? Like, I I mean, if you're playing it right, like look at, so Ricky or Volney moving into Chelsea and taking what was a two-unit building I think he got six most recently. And yeah, yeah, if that's the play, then that 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 can be easier. That to, hedges. To that helps. Do you right. do any condo development, or are you just are you all rentals? No, I've I've done a few in the past. Um, Roxbury, Medford, Dorchester, a couple of different neighborhoods, but that's not my primary focus. Um, I you know sometimes you guys are absolutely right. Sometimes you find a building that's a great deal um, in a particular neighborhood, but it doesn't fit the Burr strategy. It wouldn't be a great rental. You know, I have a couple options there. I can either, you know, sell it or, you know, help the, you know, my client sell that particular property or take it on as a condo development. So that is not my primary business. I've taken it kind of as the opportunities have come to me, um, you know, and, and, you know, as they kind of fall in my lap, but, uh, my primary focus is that long-term building of that rental portfolio. How many units are you up to now? 27. Awesome. Self-manage. Self-managed, but I, I think that is going to have to change at some point in the near future. Um, I mean, you have a lot of people that are under your employ, under your umbrella, if you will, under the companies 
So why not have somebody spend some time doing that? No, that that's a very good point. And again, I've been you know kind of bouncing back and forth with the idea of uh, you know hiring an outside management company or hiring full somebody full time to manage uh, you know under the umbrella. And I, literally, I mean, I go back and forth on a daily basis about it. But I think I, me being the control freak that I am, it probably will end up being somebody under the Mandrel Company umbrella uh, managing the properties. Did you find that when you started doing the projects themselves, you were able to make more connections with more subs and that helps in terms of if you have some kind of, whether it's an emergency maintenance issue or specialized issue, you can get somebody in quicker or more accurately. Or just getting projects done faster. I mean, the, yeah. the, the real, your relationships with the subs is really going to dictate how, you know, how well you get things done, how quickly you get things done. Um, obviously, I think anybody in real estate knows that the, the faster you get these things done, right? I mean, it's, it's the better. So one of the things that I can, you know, kind of speak to is, you know, a sub that you don't have a relationship with, somebody you just found off of Angie's list or something like that, right, is going to summit, come in and say, hey, you you want me to run all new plumbing throughout this, this you know, this three family, we're going to want 25% down or 50% down. We don't know who you are versus right. somebody you have a great relationship with um, is going to come and say, hey, I, you know, I'm going to take care of you, pay me after rough. And if you understand how the banks work, um, and I'm sure you guys do, is banks are not paying you ahead of time for you know, construction projects, right? They're not, you know, you're not going to say, Hey, I want to do plumbing, uh, Mr. Banker. And they give you $30,000 and you go do the plumbing. They're basically saying you get the plumbing done. And then we're going to come in and pay you after that, that, that rough plumbing is done. So having those relationships with a sub who's willing to come in and, and, and rough everything out for you is great. I mean, I, you know, I just did a, you know, a project where plumber comes in, electrical comes in, sprinkler comes in, you know, alarm company comes in, siding guy as well. And I literally had no money out of pocket whatsoever until after all that was, uh, you know, reimbursed by the bank. So it's just having those great relationships with subs is, is really, really cool. Killer. I think there's something to be said for working with a subcontractor who has managed their business in such a way that they don't need to be living off of a paycheck every week. Also, obviously, you know, that's kind of a luxury for a lot of people, but if you're, if you're running your business like a business, you should not be having cash flow issues. I think I saw one of these ads on Instagram one time, like PayPal. The ad was like some person that had been in construction for 20 years. Oh, they benefited from PayPal's $5,000 working capital loan. Like, <laughs> if you need five grand after working for 20 years, I think you made a mistake. No, you're, you're not. And again, your subs and should have you know uh, credit accounts with their suppliers as well, as, as right. well as you know, as like I said, as you as a developer as well. So you take those relationships with subs, and then you talk you you know you combine that with your relationship with your supply house, like New, New England Building Supply or Mazone or you know the the you know the supply houses out there. And I mean, you can get you know pretty deep into a project and you know completely be uh, leveraged out. Again, you have to manage that leverage responsibly. You know, there's a couple of people out there, no names, but, you know, they're a little <laughs> bit over leveraged. Uh, <laughs> do, you, do you use something like QuickBooks to kind of keep track of that? Do you have a bookkeeper who would project sort of, hey, here's, you know, here's how we're looking on the horizon? Because like you said, you know, I actually, we actually have some trade accounts and then you can pay those with a credit card. So you can actually float for like two or three months yeah. by the time from the day the invoice drops, when the supplies are actually dropped off yep. to when the statement comes out, then 30 days to pay that. Use a credit card, 30 more days for that if you time them all right. Yep. I'm not saying you do it on purpose, but, you know, yeah, no, cost, I mean, that's, cost of that, capital. That's the cost of capital, and it's, it's one of the, you know, the, the ways that you can get into this business. A lot of people, you know, struggle with 
you know, how do I get the money to get into? I see, you know, Dan and Ray and, and Mark doing these projects, but how do I, how do I get them funded? And a lot of times it's just, it's just responsible leverage. It's understanding the resources that you have available to you. One of the things I tell people all the time is there's nothing, I mean, you can drop me, and I've literally said this at, you know, seminars and events, you can drop me anywhere, no money in my pocket, no car, no credit cards. As long as I have a decent credit score, I will survive. And I'm going to actually thrive in no, no time. I mean, I've never, I've never lived in Detroit. I never lived in Philadelphia. Um, but you can take everything away from me and drop me in one of those neighborhoods. As long as I have, you know, a high sevens, 800 credit score, I'm going to be great. And that's, that's all that, you know, that, that it comes down to is you have to, if you can leverage yourself out, pay your bills and keep it responsible. I mean, it's, you can do some amazing things in this business. As far as paying like subs go, I think if you establish those payment terms ahead of time and everyone's expectations are clear, then the world is good. Personally, I like to pay as quickly as possible. On the flip side of that, I find I get very good response from subs yeah. when as soon as that invoice hits, they get a check that day or the next. Like that's unheard of. That's just as important is is not withholding once they've done the work either. Right. Yeah. So it, it's a delicate balance between... Right being adequately funded, being too overfunded or over leveraged, as you mentioned, and, you know, kind of being somewhere in that sweet spot. No, absolutely. absolutely. So just going back real quick, did you, so you, do you use something like QuickBooks or how are you doing kind oh, of like yeah, bookkeeping or spreadsheets yeah. or? I have a, um, I wouldn't call her full-time because she doesn't work for the company, but I have a, a bookkeeper that manages all of our rental properties and the, the and the brokerage. Uh, so somebody I talk to on a regular basis, I mean, we meet at least, you know, bi-weekly uh, and she is covering, you know, all of the financials, so to speak. Nice. So, IG Live, Mario from Boston Carpentry asks us, is it advisable to purchase a property without an agent? Is there ever a situation where that is responsible or you would recommend going it alone? I would say, yeah, I mean, I buy properties all the time. And I, you know, I tell you the truth, I have family members that buy properties all the time without me because you're talking directly to the seller. Um, If you have a relationship with that seller, if you can find things off market, again, it, it sounds you know, counterintuitive or, you know, like kind of uh, uh, contradictory to my position as a real estate agent, of course, I'm, you know, looking where our, our company's looking to earn commissions. But as my, inve- as an investor, I'm putting on my investor hat. If you have a direct relationship with an invest- a, a seller and you can go out and find opportunities on your own, absolutely. I mean, you're taking, especially in the Boston market, you know, 20, 30, 40, $50,000 out of a transaction by removing the real estate commission, you know, from that deal. So if you can show, Hey, you know, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Seller, you're looking for eight hundred thousand, but I'm willing to give you seven fifty. And here's why you should take the fifty thousand dollar discount because you'd be paying an agent forty thousand dollars to get this transaction done anyway. You know, you're just transferring that savings, or you split the savings between the two parties as well. So, should you 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 absolutely can. A lot of people don't have the time and the resources to look for properties without an agent. But if you have the ability to go out there and find deals, then absolutely. I do have a question. You know, and we I've asked this before to other brokers that we've had on the podcast. Now that you see and are involved in the trenches on the developer investor side, what are your thoughts on, you know, new platforms like Zillow coming out with, you know, ways where in developers can post their, you know, products on Zillow, you know, you pay like a $500 a month or $350 a month fee, and you don't have to go use a broker, you know, to try to avoid that whole brokerage fee type scenario, you know, because you've seen both sides. Right. So selling is is, is different. It's a, it's a little different. I would, for those people who are trying to cut out a broker on the selling side, because 
um, they, you know, they want to save a commission. I, I, I get it. But you're as a developer, you have to pick and choose your battles. Do you want to be a sales agent? It, it, there's a lot of things that go into it. It's not just pulling in buyers and marking a property and then one, you know, you choose one, um, you know, buyer. There's a lot of emotions. You just spent a year, 18 months, two years building, you know, these condos. And now you're going to have somebody that's going to come in and just pick them apart, really just kind of going through with their home inspector and tell you everything that's wrong. There are a lot of nuances with contracts and dealing with the legal side, dealing with all the clauses in the contract. I, I guess the question becomes is, do you want to go continue to be a developer and move on to the next project? Or do you want to is it worth? Is that savings worth your distraction temporarily to, to to represent yourself as an agent? That's really what it comes down to. I guess for some people, I've I've represented myself on the sale of my own property, and I found that especially when it was a rental property somewhere I've lived, somewhere I've you know spent some time there, I've improved the property. It was an emotional process where you know you don't think that you're being emotional, but you are. You're making decisions based on you know, logic, uh, emotion, not logic. And I think it's mm. always good to have a middleman there or, or woman to step back and tell you, Hey, you know, this is a good offer and you probably should take it despite the fact that you have a bad relationship with the real estate agent's cousin. So, <laughs> so, so in that scenario, did you have to obviously do the disclosure and say, you know, seller has an interest in the, yep. the property. Do you find that that turns off any buyers at all? Or because we've heard that too, in terms of when you're saying, why should a seller use an agent? You can say, yeah, you you can. And here's the here's the thing is, you know, if you're a seller, a condo developer, and you're giving out your phone number to potential buyers, you just kind of opened yourself up to a lot of different lawsuits and a lot of different, I mean, even if it's just it's just the aggravation from buyers calling you at dinner time. I mean, I, if I'm on site managing projects and doing all these things, do you really want to be in calls on a Saturday or, you know, at seven o'clock PM? I mean, as real estate agents, we get calls at eleven PM on a regular basis. People have no boundaries whatsoever. If your name and your phone number is on the internet, you're going to get a call at 11 p.m. You ever gotten a call at like three in the morning? I've gotten plenty of calls at three in the morning. I had to get to a, I get to a point where um, you have to use, I use a service called Google Voice, so you can't get my actual phone number now. And Google Voice has, you know, your, and maybe your phone has it now as well, but you're scheduling on it, right? So I, I, any call that comes in before 7 a.m. goes straight to voicemail. If it comes in after 7 p.m. or on the weekends, it goes straight to voicemail as That's well. That's free? Oh, that is free. It's Google Voice. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, you have to, is it, that's the thing that as a de- developer, you might not know about as a real estate agent, you agent, you would. So, you know, so, it's well, so Mark, so, you've, yeah. you've done it. You've used Zillow to yeah. sell properties, you I, know, without brokers. So have what you are been, you, have you been emotionally attached to what your are property? Your thoughts on the whole? <laughs> yeah. I mean, what I like about Zillow is the same thing I like about top agent network, which is another platform that allows you to go to the market and get a feel for what the reception is for your product at your price before you start collecting days on market. So once you're on MLS and the clock is ticking in this market, every day is telling a story. So if your property's out there for four weeks, for five weeks, you know, it starts to kind of look like a scarlet letter on your front door and buyers aren't that confident. They sort of think, you know, I'm not that smart, but a bunch of people have to have looked at this now in five weeks. Right. No. So, so, so that's the caveat. I, I 100% agree with you. If you can do it for that purpose, then you absolutely should go go it on Zillow. And that way you get a test for the market, especially if you're in somewhere like you, like you mentioned, these fringe markets where you don't necessarily know there's not a well-established amount of comparable sales within that market. Absolutely throw it on Zillow and see what you can get. We actually did that. Uh, and you know, I don't know why I said this doesn't leave this room or on a podcast, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, we did that a couple of times with MLS, what we'll do. And I know somebody's going to do this and I'm going to get in trouble with MLS and they're going to kick me off the platform. <laughs> but I'll, we have a three unit building. We'll throw unit four on the market. 
Nice. You know, and basically the only reason we're doing that is because, oh, we accidentally did it. It was an administrative mistake. We're just doing it to see what is the reception to the to the market uh, from that. And if we get a you know horrible reception, we know when we come on with actual unit one through three, we know that the price point needs to be a little bit lower. So it's the same same exact strategy. Another another trick that I've seen is uh, deactivating. I'm not I don't know who's ever done this, but deactivating unit three and coming back on with zero days on market with three A. Three A. Yeah, yeah. It's the same same. If you pull yeah. a listing off for a certain number of days, I it might clear. It may not, no. especially if you list it with the same brokerage. Yeah. If the same brokerage, well, then it definitely be back on market. So the other thing I like about Zillow is just I think people think in terms of stories and buyers. I'm guilty of this too. When I'm looking at properties, I love to hear, oh, he owns a taxi cab medallion, like I talked about in the last episode, and he's going bankrupt. And I'm in. So buyers like to say, like, oh, I found this on Zillow. The builder listed it. It wasn't even yet out to the broad market. It's that it's that kind of like exclu- narrative. exclusivity, yeah. kind of like, oh, this is like yeah. No, I, I, I mean, it, but be it, confident in your price because you're not going to have the benefit of an open house and the market coming back to you after three open houses or more over a weekend and letting you know what it's really worth. You you got to know the price that you're pinning on it is good. Yeah, but arguing against myself once again, the upside to that is, let's say it doesn't work out with that buyer, you can now go on MLS completely fresh, yeah. right? I mean, now mm-hmm. you like I said the opportunity to get a buyer before MLS is great because like I said if it doesn't work out, you've got a real good sense of the the market and the, you know your price point, but now you're coming on uh MLS with a fresh listing if it happens to uh to not work out. So end of the day it sounds like combination is good. Yeah, combination. You just I mean yeah. And it I, I would, on a number of units. Yeah, I would say, like I said, if you know what you're doing and you're and it's not going to be a distraction to your primary business, then go ahead and list it. You know, like I said, go ahead and do it yourself. Save the capital. If if you have three or four other deals in front of you and you're trying to, you know, it's forced between the trees through the trees, right? I mean, if you're missing, you know, other opportunities, you're not marketing, you stop, you know, um running your primary business to save. And again, most people would like 40 grand's a lot of money or whatever, but is it really in the grander scheme of things? But listing it yourself or engaging uh, a realtor aside, because I think that both, like if I hire a realtor to sell my units, I would expect that at a certain stage in the project, they would employ those tools that we just discussed, be it Zillow or Top Agent Network. Top Agent Network, are you you guys familiar? I'm not. So it's an exclusive, it's a website that allows agents who do a certain volume of business to um, get entree and access to their listings. And it's an email that goes out and it's similar. It's, it's a listing without going on MLS. So pocket listings, essentially. Uh, yeah. yeah. But again, like I think a good realtor will use those tools to your advantage. Absolutely. I mean, a good realtor is going to get it out there in any way they possibly can prior to it being completed. They understand uh, the developer's uh, standpoint, right? I mean, you have an enormous amount of debt, enormous amount of pressure on you to complete this thing and sell them as quickly as possible. Um, and if your real estate ad- does, agent doesn't understand that, then I would suggest you use another agent. <laughs> <laughs> we, we got another listener uh, question here. So David Neff from uh, Framingham Survey. Hi, David. Wants to know, what are the first things you look at when you're evaluating a property? You show up at that first open house. He said, is it is it what offers the best potential for uh, development opportunity? I'm looking at it again. You guys can chime in because, again, he's saying development, uh, you know, from a, from a Burr strategy. I'm looking at the big ticket items. I'm basically just, I know what it costs to, and, and that's why I kind of stay with my 
you know, specialized product. I, you don't, you won't see me rehabbing Victorians. You won't see me rehabbing single families in the burbs. I understand, you know, the three family in Dorchester. I know what it costs to put on a new rubber roof. I know that the thing probably has, let's call it 15 windows per level, three levels, 45 windows, right? I know that I can, you know, replace a window for, you know, a hundred dollars, 150 in labor, plus the window, if it's a cheap, you know, Harvey window, sorry, Harvey, you know, it's going to cost me another 200 more, 200 more. Right. Exactly. So I understand my, my price point, you know, really well. So I'm looking to answer this question, the big ticket items, the roof, the windows, the siding, the, um, uh, the electrical, the plumbing, the heating systems. If you have all those things intact within your three, all the other stuff is cosmetic, right? I can grab my, my cabinets at Lowe's, my, yeah, you sand know, and refinished floors for base, a, buck sand a, foot. And, a buck a foot. Exactly. Everything else is kind of minor. So those are the things that I'm looking for. Um, I used to go in and I would encourage any new investor to go in with a checklist and just kind of, um, you know, kind of go through their, um, you know, their, their, their checklist as they go through. And then the other big ticket item is the, the foundation to make sure that the foundation isn't leaking. There's not, it's not, you know, tilted to the one side. There's not huge cracks in it. Of the foundation is solid. Everything up from there, I'm pretty comfortable with. So um, it's mold, it's moisture in the basement. It's evidence of water. Exactly. And you're looking at that foundation for maybe diagonal cracks, exactly. signs of differential settlement. Yep. Yep. And, you know, another good test is just to open and close doors. Are they sticking? If you yep. put a marble on the floor, is it going to run? Is the, is the trim around the door even? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. But again, I don't want to scare folks too much because those things, though they seem scary at first, once you've dealt with that, it's just like any other risk. I've identified it. Right. And for a certain cost, I can underpin a building. I can jack the, the floors back up. Right. Right. Hey, to your so differential don't, don't settlement, just it's, it's yeah. settled already. Right. We're good. Yeah, well, it's stable. Yeah. <laughs> just gotta, just gotta put a couple shims under there. No, and again, most of the most of the Boston's housing stock is a hundred years old, right? I mean, like I said, it's gonna, it's kind of surprising that you know that it hasn't settled, settled more. even more, right? right? I mean, that's that's absolutely right. So yeah, just those big ticket items, going through having a checklist for yourself. I mean, I spend it a ridiculous amount of time, um, not so much, but in the beginning of my career, I used to literally walk up and down the aisles of Home Depot and Lowe's, just pricing things out, just understanding what shingles cost. Most people won't do that. That they kind of they want to call in their contract and rely on their contractor to figure it out. I know that, you know, like I said, I mean, I could, you know, fiberglass tub and a toilet and all these things. That if you understand the prices of these and you should understand it couldn't shouldn't cost you $20,000 to fix a bathroom. Right. You know, I mean, that's right. just. And when you are, again, going down the evaluation, you know, front, what are you looking for cash flow? Are you looking for cap rate? Are you looking for ROI? What is what is your number? I know, um, you know, cap rate is the, you know, the big term that everybody uses and they say, you know, cap rate is this and what is the expected cap rate in your neighborhood? I'm, I'm more or less looking for cash flow numbers. That's, that's at the end of the day, that's really what matters to me in a perfect world. And again, I know this is a little bit more difficult to find. I like the three. And basically what I'm looking for is if I can get us to a point where two rents are covering all of our expenses, what is my projected mortgage after, you know, it's all said, my projected taxes, insurance, water bill, um, and then a small management fee and maintenance and stuff like that. If two rents are covering, I'm, I'm almost certainly going to buy that particular property. doesn't matter whether they're one bedrooms or four bedrooms. Um, if two rents of the three are covering, that's a, that's a good deal for me. And I, I don't, I don't know that there's a minimum cash flow. I, yeah, there is. I mean, I probably wouldn't, you know, go for anything that's, you know, cash flowing 500 bucks. I mean, it has to be, you know, maybe 1500 to a couple thousand dollars for me to actually, you know, to, to put the time in it to it. So that point, do you have you, or would you look outside of the New England area to a more... Uh, good question, Ray. Yeah, to a, <laughs> because let's, let's face it, you yeah. know, it's expensive here and, and the cash flow is tough sometimes. So 
Yeah, Any so, other markets that pique your interest? So, so <laughs> again, I'm going to contradict myself. And again, once, once again here, went out to Worcester just recently. And I don't think Worcester is a bad market. I think it's a great market for somebody looking to get into the business. They don't own any rental properties or they own just their single family home. And now they're looking to, 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 to build some wealth and to establish a rental portfolio. I'd be looking at Worcester. I think the, the industry is there. I think the commuter rail the, uh, what do they call it? The, the new baseball team, Pawtucket Sox, or is moving out there and they're now the- Ted's uh, team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I think there, there is, there's opportunity um, there. You know, some things going on in Providence and certain pieces of Rhode Island as well uh, that I would look to. The reason I, I laugh is because I actually just sold a three in Worcester because I was spreading myself too thin. I think if you are going to make a move to Worcester, I would think that I, I would suggest that you commit to a certain neighborhood. Understand the reason I'm so comfortable with my pricing and the reason I can walk into a building and, you know, kind of get down to a small percentage of what things are going to cost is because I understand Dorchester. I understand the Mattapan neighborhood. I understand Roxbury. So I needed to, I, I ventured out to Worcester to try to, to, you know, experiment and learn some other markets. Um, but I found that I was spreading myself too thin. Um, it's nearly 50 miles or 60 miles away from where I live. Um, so I recently sold that property and kind of pulled back uh, and wanted to consolidate that portfolio. Boston is very tough right now. But I think if you are committed and um, it's what you do, I live and breathe this business. Everybody that knows me knows I'm in the real estate business. I talk to everybody about what I'm looking for. Hey, you know, I, it doesn't matter if you're my aunt, my grandmother, her friend, her neighbor. If you know of a multifamily that's beat up and needs some, some, some work, uh, you give me a call. So I think if you're committed, um, you can still make a, a name for yourself and make, you know, a good, uh, build a good portfolio in the city as well. So. Time for a quick round of um, overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated. I wasn't prepared for this, but all right, let's oh. go ahead. <laughs> all right. You're never prepared. You. First one, Section 8 housing. Well, you, you know what? You know how to play. So, do, I, do I know how to play? Do I just say if it's overrated or underrated or appropriately yeah. rated? Yeah. Appropriately rated. And you can expound a little bit. How do I know whether it's how, how it's rated? Just in general? No, no, this the, is your, your interpretation. Oh, my interpretation. Yeah appropriately rated. Um, I think there are, there are a lot of things that people people tend to, tend to stay away from Section 8 housing uh, because they're not educated about Section 8 housing. I think they stay away from it because they've heard nightmares about tenants and everything else. So the same things happen with market rate tenants. I can tell you this, if I can get a Section 8 or a housing voucher tenant with a security deposit, with a good credit score and additional income, I'll take that all day long. You know, I think you just need to appropriately evaluate your applications that are coming in uh, and choose the right tenant, regardless of whether they have a voucher uh, or not. So I would say appropriate. I think it's just misunderstood a little bit. Partnerships. Underrated. I think people are, I mean, I would not be where I am today without partnerships. That was the other side of it is the BRR strategy, the BRRRR strategy uh, is terrific. But a lot of times I'm also getting, you still need a down payment. You still need, you know, startup capital. So if I have, I have right now more deals coming to me than I have capital available. Um, so often I'll go and find other partners, somebody who has some cash sitting in their 401k or their you know old IRA account or has some money sitting in a bank account, but works 70 hours a week, knows that real estate is a great investment, doesn't have necessarily the time to get into it. Those are the people that I look for. The, the person who has the deal, the person who has the capital, smash this group together and you know it's a, it's a match made in heaven quite often. So I think they're very underrated and I think you should look into them you know, a lot more. One thing I'd say not to drag on too much about partnerships, have the hard conversations in the beginning. People don't often enough talk about the things that can go wrong. They they hop into partnerships and there's this, this yeah, we're going to make a whole bunch of money. We're all going to get rich and we're going to retire early. Those things will happen, but you have to have the, 
what if someone passes away? You know, what if I get hit by a bus when I leave here? What happens to your share of this property? What happens if you don't perform? Um, if you have that lunch or that that coffee and sit down and just drag out all those hard conversations and things that nobody really wants to talk about, your partnership will run a lot smoother, you know, going forward. In unit laundry, oh, in rentals. Overrated, or at least from a landlord standpoint. I go back and forth. Some of the buildings I have it in laundry or in unit, others I do not. I don't want to say that people who don't own property or tenants are irresponsible. I just hesitate. If one, you know, you know, washing machine overflows and now you're repairing units two and three, it happens on the third floor and you know you're repairing units one and two uh, because there was an overflowed washing machine. It's just a lot of you know expense and headache. You know, my personal residence, I have laundry on the third floor, but I know that if something happens, I can clear everybody out and you know and, and resolve the issue. Um, whereas that's a little bit more difficult in a tenanted building. So my uh, most recent purchase. Uh, all the laundry went into the basement. We properly insulated the basement, made it as comfortable as possible. Um, but now I know if there's a problem uh, with water, it at least stays on the ground level. Like so, a yeah. nice, like a nice bench and a floral arrangement. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like a like a car air freshener, we hung up like over yeah. on top of it. We we, we had a, we'll call a moisture issue as well. A couple of our properties uh, one time, or one of our properties one time, and uh, yeah, it's no fun. Dude, I have three rental properties, and my experience as a landlord is the washer or dryer is always broken. Yeah. It's like everything else runs itself. I don't know. Yeah, no, and I, the other thing, the thing I've kind of gone back and forth with is just providing the hookup and just having somebody, you know, provide their own washer and dryer. Because, yeah, if you have to uh, service any, any appliances, obviously, you're going to put into the thing. So that's one of the things I, I don't have a firm position on, really. I'm kind of just kind of all over the place. It depends on, you know, the particular neighborhood and, you know, the feeling that I get at that particular time. So. 511 Mass Ave. So 511 Mass Ave, to fill you guys in, is a, is a great property. I've been trying to get back to the South End forever. Uh, you know, like I said, that's where my, my grandmother established her portfolio. I finally get a call off of a letter from a uh, woman who owns 511 Mass Ave. And I mean, I, you know, I bent over back for this woman, bent over backwards for this woman. I ate some awful food. I drank some awful <laughs> coffee. I had some conversations. I'm not even really sure what we were talking about. I mean, we're assuming she's not a listener of the podcast. No, 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 she's no, not. no. And even if she was, you know, she ended up going with someone else uh, years ago. <laughs> years ago, some, someone that she, might she, be in the same yeah, room. She, it someone. Like. <laughs> she ended up uh, selling to another uh, developer years ago. Uh, never really told me. Actually, her daughter ended up co- contacting yeah. you. I think at some point, I was talking to. It was the mother who owned the house. I was talking to her daughter. Mark stole the property from me from her granddaughter. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> wow. This was funny though, because I said it just in passing at one of our lunches. I'm like, yeah, we, we're just about finished at five. And Willie looks at me, he's like, what number mass have? <laughs> oh man, that was a, that was a great property. But you know what? In hindsight, I don't know that I was ready for that anyway at the time. You would have uh, figured it out. I would have figured it out. Yeah, I would have leveraged everything I had to get, you know, that, that's a great- oh, partnerships. That's yeah. what we would have done. <laughs> yeah. So was sorry this, for not calling you. Was this an <laughs> underrated, overrated? I don't yeah, get, yeah, I was just screwing around, but- <laughs> Breaking the rules this definitely time. Definitely overrated. I think overrated, it's yeah. a good place to leave it and uh, appreciate everybody listening. Yeah, thanks very much for listening, sharing, keep it going. Uh, keep DMing the uh, Real Estate Addicts Instagram uh, account. Follow us, choose Boston, HRV Homes. If, Willie, if, if anyone knows anybody- Who's who'd be a good guest? Who'd be a good guest? Yeah. Definitely reach out. Yeah. We're looking no, for more. I really, other I, people follow the Mandrell. Um, I appreciate you guys having me on, first of all. Um, I don't know what took you guys so long since I <laughs> since, 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 since technically I am the founder of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> True. 
mandrelco.com, M-A-N-D-R-E-L-L-C-O.com is the brokerage website. We're also on Instagram. I'm not a big Insta person, but uh, I think it's we're at Boston Wealth Builders. Social media, uh, the Facebook, we're on the, the Facebook as well. <laughs> wow. The gram and the Facebook. <laughs> at Mandrell Company or uh, uh, backslash Mandrell Company. So, you know, then you could, uh, it's uh, info at Mandrellco if you'd like to reach me directly. So we'd awesome. love to talk to you if you have any other questions. And like I said, once again, I appreciate you guys having me on. Absolutely. Thanks, Thanks very Willie. much. Thank All you. All right. Yep. Appreciate it, guys. See you, everybody. Take care. Okay, guys.